3: afternoon, and welcome back to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so pleased that Congressman Tim Ryan is joining the show to discuss his book, The Real Food Revolution, where he writes about the myriad challenges facing our food system, the cumulative effect they have on our health and the environment, and some common sense actions that any of us can undertake as citizens to improve our collective quality of life now and for future generations. Congressman Ryan represents Ohio's 13th district and was first elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2002. He's now serving in his eighth term and is a member of the House Appropriations Committee and the co-chairman of the Congressional Manufacturing Caucus. Congressman Ryan, welcome to the show.
4: Great to be with you. I'm very excited.
3: (laughs) So am I. Um, Okay, can you tell us how you uh, first became interested in the food movement?
4: Well, I, I think if I look at it, I go back to um, being raised half Italian. My, my mom's one hundred percent Italian, and I, we grew up a couple blocks from my grandparents, who uh, had a garden, and we ate fresh foods, and everything was home cooked and homemade. And my grandmother got mad at us if we would go out to eat, you know. So
3: <laughs> same, same, my actually. <laughs>
4: <laughs> my my appreciation, I think, starts uh, back then, but for the purposes of uh, really the policy issue and everything. I wrote a book called A Mindful Nation, and it was about mindfulness meditation and the stress levels that we have as a country and post-traumatic stress for our vets and just information overload and how I felt like this technique, these kind of contemplative practices, could be very helpful to increase focus, reduce stress, improve performance, and help us just kind of recalibrate ourselves as a country. And while I was researching the book and researching a lot about stress, I mm-hmm. was realizing that our health really isn't just the stress piece. I kept coming around to the food piece and the highly processed food and the diabetes rates and all of these other things that were somewhat stress-related but also uh, dietary-related. And so that was the really when my interest peaked on the policy side of food and how that could really be a way to solve our budget problems in the long term with our health care programs like Medicare and Medicaid, the Veterans Health Care Program, and overall health care costs in the country. Mm-hmm. We started doing a little better job uh, with our food system.
3: What do you mean by the real food revolution?
4: Well, it obviously is a play on words, but uh, uh, eating real food. Um, you know, Dr. Mark Hyman, who's a buddy of mine, calls it frankenfood, you know, the <laughs> The stuff that's just been so highly processed multiple times over and over and over again. And it's not the lettuce or the garlic that my grandmother, the peppers, or on and on that my grandmother picked out of the garden. Um, And so, to me, that's the cause of a lot of the sickness in the country is that we're eating food that was really never meant to be eaten.
3: Um, Okay, so... As you know, I'm sure, we're living in politically strange times. Um, where <laughs>
4: I've noticed. <laughs> You've notice?
3: noticed, yeah. Um, so as you know, every day something, quote, unprecedented seems to happen, to use CNN's favorite term, um, you know, from accusations of Russian interference in our presidential election to an all-out war in the media, and then also issues we thought were, you know, settled or maybe headed in the right direction, like affordable health care for all, addressing man-made causes of global warming, these issues are on the chopping block. So my question is, realistically, do we need to reprioritize where food issues fall on the advocacy spectrum and focus on some of these bigger, quote, bigger issues during the next four years?
4: Well, I think food is kind of an underlying issue for most of the things we talk about. Um, Obviously it's something we need every day Mm -hmm. and it's essential to our own survival, but it also does affect global warming. A lot of uh, the carbon that is uh, produced comes out of uh, agribusiness, um, not just in the United States, but around the world. The way we grow our food, produce our food, it's a huge carbon footprint. Um, So it's an issue for global warming. I think when you look at productivity, And our test scores and you look and see what we feed a lot of our kids in our schools, chocolate milk with lots of uh, uh, added sugar in it. You look at, you know, the the bars that they eat, the Rice Krispie Treats that they eat with a lot of additive sugar. Uh, And so it's affecting our cognitive uh, skills as a country, especially with our kids. Mm-hmm. And if you, uh, you, know, you look at our health, you look at the diabetes rates, you look at the heart disease rates, the cancer rates, everything has gone up in the last 30 years as we move to more and more uh, highly processed foods. And so our health care costs are going up. So really under all of these issues uh, lies our food and, and our, the food system, not to mention the fact really which is the, the, the main culprit here is that we take taxpayers' money uh, their taxes that they pay, and we subsidize certain crops because mm-hmm. farming is such a difficult business. But we we subsidize crops that really much of it gets in uh, processed into uh, whether it's high fructose corn syrup or soy oil or you know uh, you know the wheat a lot of the wheat that's in uh, a lot of our foods and crackers and other processed food we make that artificially cheap. And uh, in, in, through these subsidies, and so that 's the main culprit, so we subsidize the crops that are making us sick, and mm-hmm. then we subsidize the health care when we need to, the, to deal with our diabetes, our heart disease, and all the other things in our Medicare and Medicaid program to me that 's a screwed up system <laughs> that, yeah. and you wonder why people are pulling their hair out saying the government is really just <laughs> they don 't get it and yeah. I think the this argument articulates i think for average voters and average taxpayers what's wrong with the whole system uh, when you look at it from that perspective
3: so you think it's it's um, totally worth advocates kind of continuing to push for a reform in our food system in addition to all these other issues we're now faced with
4: yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah and i would i would i would say you know we need to focus on though the main issue really the subsidies for our farmers and i'm not talking about not paying our farmers Mm -hmm. because i think they they deserve it i just would like to maybe even pay them a little bit more pay them a premium to grow produce and to tie into their local community uh in in more significant ways so it's farm to school and we can deal with that food issue that i mentioned about the what we're feeding our kids in our schools um but give them a market you know we spend a lot of money in our schools on food let's let's make the farmer uh benefit from that i think that would be um really important you know yeah, uh, yeah. let's also look at the hospitals uh let's look at the prisons that that buy food like these are huge governmental contracts mm-hmm. that really could directly uh pay farmers for more fresh less processed food so i call that feed america first so before we get into, like, feeding the globe, let's feed America first, and that means moving to this more farm-to-table style uh, system.
3: Um, in in thinking about that, uh, you know, like feeding America first, I'm wondering... Um, the extent to which you see renegotiating or adjusting our trade policies, what would that have on the effect of uh, encouraging more farmers to shift their production portfolio to more fruits and vegetables?
4: Well, it could have uh, some effects because agriculture is is a huge export for us. So, you know, again, as long as I think the markets are being created for uh, the farmers, as long as they are, getting paid to grow some of these healthy foods, at the end of the day, we're still going to save a lot of money as a country because that's going to be less money we're spending in our health care system. So it's really a shift to the front end of, you know, getting these foods out in food deserts, for example, where many kids live in both rural areas and inner city areas where they do not have access to a grocery store. They go to a corner market. And that's a huge problem because they end up buying this uh, crappy food. So um, I think it, at the end of the day, it would be some adjustments, but as long as the farmers are able to make a living, you know, to me, that's what I care about most. And look, we're not going to have hoop houses uh, everywhere, there's right. still going to be uh, farmers who have. They ship product abroad. That's still going to be a part of the portfolio, but we need to start moving in this other direction if ultimately we're going to get our health care costs under control and we're going to be a healthier country.
3: And the other direction is providing more subsidies to uh, encourage the growing of fresh fruits and vegetables, which you write about, it it seems like happens mostly on small and mid-sized farms as opposed to these larger farms that, that produce more commodities.
4: Yeah. Yeah, and, and like I said, there, it's okay. The commodities market uh, is still a, a viable market. It's still something that we have to do. And in many parts of the world, we do have to still get calories out. But at the end of the day, we are still not feeding the world. We, there are still, you know, one to two billion people in the world that, that don't have access to food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, this whole idea that we were going to get this mass production of farming so we could feed the world, hasn't really solved that problem. So we got a long way to go because it's also making us sick here at home. And yeah. again, look, I'm not a prude. Like I eat <laughs> ice cream and I eat chicken wings <laughs> and I'm not like, uh, you know, uh, I, I just- Well, those I those
3: cheat. things are delicious.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like them. It's part of my comfort food. It's, it's fun. I'm not ready to give that up. But at the same time, I recognize that, you know, we can't be giving our kids Uh, you know, Coca-Cola for breakfast in a a Rice Krispie treat. And that's in essence what we're doing now.
3: So, okay. So I want to talk a little bit more about the farm bill um, in a minute, but um, first I want to kind of get back to this idea that you established um, early in the show, which is that these issues, food-related issues, um, by and large affect every American. Um, But, At the same time, food system reform doesn't appear to be a bipartisan issue. Like the now CIA director, Mike Pompeo, we know, fought GMO labeling legislation and and also happening in the House. Republicans are fighting to roll back nutrition standards. Um, So how do you how can you explain this and and what we what can we do to make a food system reform more bipartisan, especially in light of a Republican Party that's retraining its focus on working-class Americans?
4: Well, I think you talk about, and we need to talk about it in the context of uh, the the long-term budget in the country and really having enough money and resources to be able to invest into basic research, to make sure that we can build roads and bridges and put broadband all over the country and move to a green energy renewable economy, which would create energy jobs. you got to have money to do that. And right now, a lot of our money is getting eaten up in the health care system because of mm-hmm. diabetes, for example, and the other things that we talked about. So, ultimately, not to get too wonky on you, but I know your listeners uh, pay attention to a lot of this stuff. Yeah. A, a big part of the budget for the United States, about a third of it, is our two health care programs the Medicare program, which provides health care for our seniors, mm-hmm. and the Medicaid program, which provides health care for. The poorest citizens. So, you know, nursing home care and, and care for kids and all of that. So those two programs are about a third of our budget. And if we want to balance our budget as a country in the long term, we've got to address these two programs. And so bending the cost curve on health care is critically important for us as a country to free up money I mean, if everybody in the country has diabetes, or half the country has diabetes, which is projected, by the way, in the next uh, five years, half the country is going to wow. have either diabetes or pre-diabetes. So that sinks your budget, and and so if you want to talk to a, a fiscal conservative Republican who is very concerned about the the, the b- balancing the budget of the country, laying forth a practical plan that actually. Can get us there without slashing benefits for seniors who need the coverage because they're poor and they've lost their pension or whatever the case may be, I think is a more a practical approach. And so the reason I wrote Real Food Revolution and why you know do uh, interviews with uh, advocates like you is because I, I really believe that this message can resonate if we can just get it out at the national level. I think most independent voters would go, boy, that's very practical. Mm-hmm. So as a Democrat, I'm trying to push it out there to say, hey, look, the Democrats are really trying to solve problems, and here's a guy from Ohio who's talking about how to do it, and it appeals to independence because of the budget issue. Then we free up money to invest in education, to invest into research, to invest into broadband technology, fiber, so everyone can have access to the new economy. I mean, it makes practical sense. So I think talk to conservatives in that regard. Uh, and it's very much about individual responsibility too. But you got to give people the opportunity to have affordable, healthy food,
3: mm-hmm. and
4: that's what this—that's what this would do.
3: Um, speaking of money, uh, you also talk about the effect lobbying has on influencing major policy initiatives. Which, by the way, I thought was refreshing and brave. <laughs> of you. Um, Can you first outline the extent to which lobbying has influenced major policy decisions uh, with regard to food?
4: Well, you have a lot of the the big uh, agribusinesses. You know, the the farming industry has really consolidated over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and they've become kind of not quite monopolies, but they're getting pretty close. And they have a real stranglehold on the political system, but they also donate a lot of money to the the, uh, politicians in Washington, D.C., and, you know, they kind of are keeping the status quo. And so the Real Food Revolution is about energizing grassroots people all over the country, the small, medium-sized farmer, the specialty farmer, the moms and dads who are concerned about, you know, what's in their kids' uh, food, uh, what kind of school lunches and school breakfasts that they're getting, and healthcare public health officials across the country to say look we've got a lot more votes and a lot more connectivity with uh with the grassroots people than you know one agribusiness uh, corporation would have so we've got to get organized to combat the money that they're putting into the political system and talk to our members of congress about what kind of farm bill we want to see that front loads a lot of this stuff that starts doing pilot programs with maybe giving that the premium uh, support for farmers who do convert over to more produce, help them with hoop houses and hot boxes and everything that they would need to kind of convert over. Uh, maybe from what they're doing now, if they have a 1,000-acre farm, get a 100 acres or 200 acres and help them convert it over. Then you need, like, refrigerated trucks and stuff to move the produce, so help them pay for that stuff. You know, all we can do, but that's going to come from the grassroots level not from someone who's currently benefiting from the status quo. And so the money that they donate keeps the status quo with the politicians in Washington, and that's something that we've got to change.
3: Um, okay, so we're going to take a very quick commercial break right in here now and hear a word from our sponsors. Um, but when we get back, we'll be, deep, be digging into some of the more nuanced policy prescription prescriptions and what you can do to support a healthier, more sustainable food system. Stay tuned.
1: is brought to you by Chef's Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chef's Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chef's Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters
3: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Congressman Tim Ryan about his book, The Real Food Revolution. Um, Congressman Ryan, what do you see as the role of federal regulations for some of the issues in our food system? So, for example, the role of preventing monopolies in seed and food production, which you write about, as well as the role in something that has a vital effect on our, on our public health, like curbing the use of antibiotics.
4: Well, again, I think, you know, there's two ways to do this. One is you you vote with your dollar and uh, you try to raise awareness to the extent you can through social media, programs like this, sharing information about really what's going on with a lot of these antibiotics and uh, the issue with uh, becoming resistant to treatment because of uh, how much antibiotics are pumped into our food. Um, so you vote with your dollar and you know, try not to buy that stuff. We we go out of our way in my family to really try to, if there's one thing we're going to do it's like the antibiotic issue is, is the number one thing we try to stay away from, uh, in our, in our, uh, meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the other is, again, you gotta be organized. You know, you have to have a political organization because so much of this is about regulating the market. It's about, uh, writing a, a farm bill that reflects, the best in the, you know, public health uh, of our country. And that means being connected to your member of Congress, whoever your congressman is. You've got to get to know her, get to know him, talk to them about these issues, have a group of people organized in your community in in that congressional district that can pick up the phone and say, hey, we have, you know, a hundred moms that are talking about antibiotics. And there's a bill coming up that you know, we need you to vote with us on and and just call the office and nag them until they have a meeting with you. Um, that's just what it takes. I mean, that's that's how a democracy operates. And if you're apathetic and you just kind of sit by the wayside and you say, well, someone else will take care of it, then that turns into a problem because then, again, the money takes over, the status quo continues, and it becomes more and more difficult for people to... Uh, make the, in my my position to make the change because we don't have the support from other members of Congress.
3: Can you actually um, talk a little bit about the issue with companies um, like what what you call the the quote the big four biotech uh, seed companies owning eighty percent of the U.S. corn market and seventy percent of the soybean business?
4: Yeah, so you know, you get you get these big corporations, uh, you know, like Conag, and, and basically they've gotten. They talk about vertically integrating. I mean, they go from um, having the seed, owning the seed, having a patent on the seed, uh, and then really forcing farmers to uh, stay with that particular seed. Uh, so the farmer. Gets locked into a relationship with with this company, uh, and then they also control the processing. Many instances, the 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 kind of downstream. You think of them in the terms of manufacturing is like the supply chain. You know,
5: mm-hmm.
4: so they control that whole operation, uh, and so they, you know, and it's just just a few companies right now that have this this stranglehold. And and so it becomes very very dangerous, especially when you're talking about, you know, owning seeds and having patents on certain seeds that that uh, you know many farmers get punished if
5: mm-hmm. if
4: uh, somehow you know they use some other seed or you know want to change. They're they're locked in, and so these companies are really running the whole show right now.
3: And would regulating that be something that Republicans would point to and say, that's government overreach? Or do you think that they would be in support of uh, that kind of regulation?
4: You know, I don't I don't really think, honestly, that a lot of uh, members of Congress pay a whole lot of attention to these issues. It's Mm -hmm. very much in the weeds. You know, if you come from a rural district, you're just more likely than not going to just vote for the farm bill and not push too hard to make any real changes. And, you know, what we need now is to have people that are outside of um, rural communities paying more and more attention, you know, suburban moms, for example, to pay more attention because the heart of the matter is in the farm bill. And you've got to have connections to your congressmen and they got to know that this is a main issue for you. We got because we're really at the awareness point now. You know, Mm -hmm. we've got to make more and more members of Congress aware that there there's a voting block out there. You know we had soccer moms, we had security moms, well, now we need like seed moms yeah. uh, or like seed you know, millennials <laughs> yeah, you know food food moms, food millennials, like just saying, and i think I think once we like uh, get a critical mass of people talking about this, it makes complete sense i mean people yeah. it's not it's not something that is really foreign because everybody knows what's going on.
3: Well, that's one of the most frustrating things, I, I think, personally, is like these, you know, what a lot of these kind of prescriptions, policy prescriptions call for, it is common sense and it would save money down the line and it would mean healthier people. I just don't understand why they haven't kind of seeped into the mainstream a little bit faster, but uh, I feel like I don't that's understand. Our, no, yeah. that's our job. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. that
4: that's really our mission. I, I wasn't, you know, I really didn't want to write another book. It's a big <laughs> undertaking, but I just, yeah. I really felt strongly that I needed a platform to begin to talk about this and maybe galvanize um, some people across the country with a book. And I, you know, I don't solve every problem in there, but I just want to start the discussion that we need to have about how do we solve these problems. and, and, so, so we have to bring all the stakeholders to the table. I mean, we've got to have the Farm Bureau there. We've got to have the Soybean Association there. We've got to have, uh, you know, the the, the doctors and the, the, the public health officials. And and we've got to just say, okay, how do we sit down and figure this out? We're not here to screw anybody. Like I say, if we do this the right way, we could actually uh, maybe pay farmers more for for doing this because we're going to save money in the long run so everybody needs to be a part of the solution here and it's it's totally doable
3: um i want to uh, we we only have a few more minutes left but i definitely um want to kind of get wonky for a second, and um, talk a little bit about one of the policy prescriptions you call for in the Farm Bill is to end the scams. Um, Can you give us a, I know it it gets a little bit complicated, but like a broad outline of um, the issues, just to kind of give people a baseline understanding of some of the things at stake in the Farm Bill that they could be thinking about?
4: Well, there's a lot. (laughs) I think the key, the key is how do we, um, you know, move investments to the front, how do, front end of the healthcare system, front end of the food system, um, how do we build out programs for new farmers, you know, local foods, creating markets, kind of connecting farmers to those local schools and the uh, prisons and the public facilities that have those big dollars, but also, you know, make sure that, the, and this does get super wonky, so I won't get too much into it, but um, how these formulas are set up on, uh, you know, how much farmers will get paid for uh, commodity prices for corn, for example. Sometimes these formulas are written, uh, and I know already they're blowing the budget on it with uh, reimbursements for um, corn. In in look, I I want farmers to make money, and we're not here to hurt anybody. But at the same time, we can't afford to have a system that's rigged for the real big farmers. And meanwhile, you know, a veteran who wants to start a specialty farm in Ohio is going to have a lot of trouble making ends meet. I would rather spend that money on that small, medium-sized family farmer uh, to help them grow their business and and it's even economic development in a lot of these rural areas. So that the formulas that are written in some of these farm bills are kind of a backdoor way to get big money to these big corporations.
3: And by formulas, you mean um, the the equ- equations by which uh, certain farmers will receive subsidies or receive um, insurance uh
4: yeah, they, well, they changed it around. They made it seem like, uh, instead of direct payments, which is a subsidy, you know, you'll get X amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. They created this that wasn't politically, uh, palatable to, uh, a lot of conservatives who actually get this money in their congressional districts. Um, they, so they started this system called crop insurance and, and that, as it's laid out, um, that is another way to basically get inflated dollars to some of these bigger farmers. But we can't be fooled by the names of these things. And I go into it if somebody's really interested in a little bit more detail uh, in in the book. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, if anybody really wants to get all wonked out, there are other books yes. about this. But <laughs> uh, uh, you we know, want that, people to do that. <laughs> well, yeah, and it helps to understand. And again, that. I think that's why it's so complicated. It's one of, it's like the tax code. I mean, when you start talking about these things, people's eyes glaze over. (laughs) And that's why I think as advocates, we do need to keep it focused on kind of the big picture stuff, prevention, uh, you know, uh, is worth a pound of cure kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those are the kind of top line angles as far as how we talk about this stuff that most people get intuitively and understand.
3: Right. And I have to actually say, though, the way you laid it out in your book, I thought was um, very straightforward and user-friendly for people who... Uh, might not feel confident enough in, you know, in their knowledge base currently about some of these issues, but want to learn more, Um, it was uh, very clearly laid out. um, Great. Thank you. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the federal level, and now I want to talk about the local and state level, which you point out um, as being super, super important. Um, So... As ordinary citizens are becoming involved in advocacy, um, actually at virtually every, every level, like what are some of the uh, policy opportunities at the state and local level that people can be doing that will make a difference?
4: Well, I think the state has a huge role in the the local, the county government or city government, they, there are a lot of really cool innovations happening at the local level where uh, in Los Angeles I was at a business incubator where they were – you know working on the basically vertical gardens that you can take an old old kind of run down uh, high rise building and you can turn it into a vibrant farm uh, basically um, and and feed uh, the neighborhood and feed the downtown and be able to uh, reduce your uh, carbon footprint again because you don't have the kind of transportation costs that you would have if you're shipping everything in or trucking everything in from the rural part of the state. So really cool stuff happening like that at the local level. So cities, if you're on city council or you know a city council person, Mm -hmm. you know, those are the kind of neat things that you can start talking about. Also, reducing energy costs by putting um, rooftop gardens on that uh, some restaurants are doing that. Um, It takes the heat from the sun. And it gets absorbed in the soil and helps grow plants, but it also keeps the buildings cool, and so it reduces the energy cost of the owner of the building. In many instances, that could be the person who owns the restaurant. So uh, you're reducing their overhead cost. Now you're getting fresher food into uh, into that restaurant, and they may have a few extra bucks to maybe pay their workers more or to you know make a little bit more money. So those are the kind of things that can happen at the local level. Same with the Farmers' markets and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. School boards, I think, there are great opportunities with with schools to try to figure out how to really partner up with uh, local farmers. And you know, if you've got, if you know somebody on a school board, or you want to run for school board, say, okay, how do we really focus on the food? You know, there's five, six, seven members of the school board. I'm going to run, and I'm going to focus on on the food in the schools. Um, you know, how do we get school gardens in Youngstown? We're going to have a, we're going to have a garden in every school and a salad bar in every school in the Youngstown city school system. Now, here's an older wow. industrial, you know, a town that's had its share of problems. And we're really trying to make sure these kids in the, in the school district get health, access to healthy food. And we want to change everybody's psychology on it by having that, that there at the school. Tie it into the curriculum. Have the salad bar uh, at the lunch uh, at, the, at the lunch room for them to be able to eat it. And then you can whether and they talk about the state level or the local county level. I think as we begin to take down, and I we're pushing this hard, and I talk about it in the book, the neighborhood stabilization program, which is billions and billions of dollars to knock down older, dilapidated homes in some of these. Community. So Youngstown was, I think, 160,000 people at one point, mm-hmm. and now it's about 70. So we have a lot of housing that needs to come down. It's drug infested, it's crime infested, yeah. and it's got all kinds of problems. So take down those uh, homes. In some instances, you can rehabilitate it for maybe industrial use to raise the tax base for the community, which I think is really cool, but also urban farming. And how do you pay kids maybe, uh, you know, get raised beds if there's a problem with the soil, raise the beds, get uh, healthy food into some of these communities that don't have access to healthy food, don't even have access to a a grocery store, and, and then hire kids in the summer and after school to actually work on these farms in the urban areas, put these kids to work, get them interested in something, get them learning how to grow things and Make things come alive, as opposed to a lot of the violence that's happening in some of these communities. So all the way around at the local level, and then the state can provide incentives for this stuff. And the state, too. Uh, this be my last point. The state, too, has so many contracts. You know, you look at the state prison systems, for example, mm-hmm. how much money they spend on food in our prisons. Those are public dollars. And then the food you're giving these uh, inmates is not good. I mean, it's not good for rehabilitation purposes. It's, you know, it's just a lot of it's not healthy for them. So um, why not tie the farmers in, pay them a premium, and use these public dollars to incentivize farmers moving more and more into growing this kind of healthy food? So those are just some examples of how, you know, we can do this. But, You know, the idea is get somebody in local office and get some people supporting them for local office and then come up with creative ideas at the local level that the rest of the country and world could um, learn about.
3: All right. All of that sounds wonderful. Um, Let's do it. (laughs) All
5: right. I'm in.
4: All
3: right. Um, Well, before we wrap up, I just want to see anything coming down the pike from you. Um, What can we expect to see out of your office in uh, uh, in the next year?
4: Well, we're going to continue down the road. We're trying to do uh, a salad bar in every school in the country. So that's that's our goal. Uh, we're really working hard to try to uh, figure out how to make our, our military base as healthy as possible with our Healthy Base initiative and, and again, try to use federal bases as opportunities for for farmers to um, make some money and have a market with, the, with their product. Uh, again, government spending. Yeah. Uh, stimulating this kind of growth. So I mean, you think about it, you know, you have military bases, schools, universities.
3: Huge uh, institutional prisons, p- purchasing power. A
4: huge purchasing power yeah. to really shift this market. And I think that at the end of the day, we're just I'm trying to find different ways uh, to make that happen. We also have a bill that is pushing more nutrition education in our medical schools to make sure that our doctors are, are seeing you know, let your food be your medicine, uh, really be a major component of healthcare in the 21st century. But a lot of medical schools do not teach uh, this kind of, you know, the diet and nutrition uh, component of a well-rounded medical education. So these are some of the things we're going to be working on in uh, 2017.
3: All right. And then for more information, if our listeners want to go to read more about these initiatives, would you direct them to your website?
4: You can just uh, Google uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, and uh, you'll go right to our my official government website. I think it's timryan.gov and uh you'll you'll be able to see what we're doing
3: perfect okay we're going to have to leave it there for today but congressman ryan thank you so much um first of all for for using your position in government to um you know really push these issues uh forward and um, raise awareness and for taking it so seriously and secondly for coming on the show today and and talking to me about it
4: absolutely well we need to build an army yes and uh and I think we're in the process of doing that, but really standing up for what we believe in and, and you know, shouting from the rooftops that this is really <laughs> what a 21st century government should be doing. I mean, that, that we, we, know, we know the solutions. We know what has to be done. Now let's, you know, kick government in the butt and make it do it the way we want to do it.
3: Let's do it. <laughs>
4: All right. Sounds good. Keep up the great
3: work. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. Alrighty. You got it. Okay, I also want to thank our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lenzett, and the show music is by the fabulously talented Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, David Tatashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening.